In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. The Sphinx is a new best. Dogs are everyone's best. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. You want to know who built the pyramids? Watch 101 Dalmatian. Anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. In an America that's recuperating from eight years of terror alerts comes a book that will scare you back to red. Critical Mass. If you liked Whitley Strieber's alien books, you'll love his terror. Chair, 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 chair. What? Jeff, I'm, you can't interrupt me. I'm in the middle of doing a, a spot for Strieber. That's not even a complimentary spot. What the hell are you doing? What do you mean? It's irony. People, it's it's a joke. Everybody likes smarmy, ironic jokes. Really? Hold on. Let me turn off this annoying echo. How about, uh... Critical mass! Rhymes with ass! It'll kick yours! I thought you I thought you liked Whitley. I do! I love Whitley! And I'm reading Critical Mass, and I like it. I think it's a great book. I, I, that's why I want to do a free ad for him. But, Jerry, we got real ads. Like this! Research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. That'll work too, I guess. But well, what were you gonna do? <laughs> oh well, I, I I don't know. I didn't have one for Eerie Radio. I w- if I did, it would definitely I would definitely have used that same deep voice effect because that's cool. Eerie Radio kind of sounds like that guy from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, mm-hmm. she a great big fat person. Yeah. <laughs> she a great big fat person. <laughs> ah, never mind. Okay. Humor, lost on new generation, yes. That's right. Critical Mass is good, by the way. I am reading it, and I do like it. That's good. Yeah. I'm also watching 24. I just got done with season four of 24. And um, you know what really bothers me? And I forgot about this. Uh, I, I remember hearing about it, but, th- but now watching it, watching it on DVD, it's like really what makes me want to punch the TV, is that they had... Jack Bauer say nuclear instead of nuclear so that George Bush wouldn't look like a dipshit. Did you know about that? Oh. Yeah, because Bush can't say nuclear. So uh, instead of saying, wow, our president can't say nuclear and he's got his finger on the bomb, they decided in their infinite wisdom to support him by having the lead character also say nuclear. 
so that bugs me. And I, I wonder how they feel about that decision now, however many years later, given what George Bush has become in the public eye. I wonder if they're feeling good about that. But nonetheless, uh, we're not here to talk about any of that. We're here to talk about um, what? Some other bullshit. Oh, the trickster. <laughs> no? <laughs> That's not going to help either. That's not that's not promoting even this show or our guest, is it? Not really. God, I just can't. You know what, Jeff? I can't. I can't do this. I'm. It's. It's not in me to do advertising. I guess if so, maybe if if you want to handle that. I mean, you got that eerie radio spot, so maybe maybe you're better with that stuff than I am. So what do you want me to do? Well, I don't know. Maybe just uh, give me the spots, and I'll just run them instead of running my mouth. As the spots? Yeah, that'd be good. All right. So who's on the show? What do we got, George Hansen? George Hansen. George Hansen. Master trickster dude. The dude of tricks. Many a trick. That's right. A a gay magician, is that correct? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm sorry, George. Why? He's an idiot. (laughs) I thought that's what I got out of the CD. No, no. Not a gay magician. No, no. Not that you have to be gay to be a magician. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Or a magician to be gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with magicians or gay people. If I've learned anything from the Oscars, it's that there's nothing wrong with either magic, movie magic, or homosexual movies that are magical. Jesus Christ. Nothing? <laughs> All right. Wonder how much of this will make it into the show. All right. <clears throat> Hi, George. Are you there? Oh. Yeah, that's right. I did that. Uh, nothing. That did nothing for either of you. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so now, George, we we wanted to talk to you because you seem like a uh, well. I met you at um, one of them. One of them there UFO conferences um, or UFO Congress, I guess it is. And you seemed like um, how do I say the sane one in the room. Um, and I got to know you a little bit, and you're you're sort of all about the Jacques Vallée style trickster theory. And Jeff and I, um, as much as we listen to uh, anyone try to explain to her what uh, explain to us what the trickster is, neither of us can seem to wrap our heads around how it represents anything except an abstract concept or a psychological concept. Uh, could you explain it to us and maybe make sense of it for us? Well, it's certainly. It's certainly an abstract concept. I wouldn't say it's necessarily psychological. Uh, There's a lot of theory about it, but most of it is highly scattered across a number of different disciplines, a number of different subdisciplines. So it's a little bit difficult to grasp how I use that term. So what I try to do in my book and on my website is give lots and lots of particular examples. There is quite a lot of theory about the trickster that uh, comes out of folklore and anthropology. It's not terribly well known even within and among anthropologists. It was very big back in, the most important work was done back in the 60s and 70s, and those disciplines are rather faddish. So someone getting a doctoral degree today in anthropology might never have heard of the, uh, the work on the trickster and what is called liminality. So 
it's far too complex and involved to present in a podcast. <laughs> I can refer you to my... If you, we Good, can podcast take- is over. Fantastic. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, no, definitely... Uh, well, okay, first, yeah, refer us to whatever literature that we can find, and then I will grill you about this further. Well, I, I'd first uh, recommend going to my website, tricksterbook.com. There's the introduction to my book that gives uh, a bit of uh, detail on it, and I have a number of my professional papers there. There's a book, uh, or a, a piece on my website uh, on ghosts and liminality that starts to explain some of these concepts in a little bit more detail. Okay, well, what, what so, is it that we're going to be able to find? Like, for instance, Jeff and I are experiencers of this so-called high strangeness, and so for guys like us, what can we glean out of the trickster theory that's going to make sense of what we're going through in real terms? Okay, well, one of the things that I really focus on, among others, is uh, the lack or the inept institutions around this phenomenon. And until one starts to look at the, this broader perspective, not necessarily just individual experiences, but what happens around the phenomena, the reactions to it, and how the culture treats it, one tends to miss the essential nature of this. Uh, this is a far more pervasive phenomenon than people tend to realize. One of the big aspects of my book is to explain this uh, concept called anti-structure. And paranormal phenomena tend to have some aversion or antipathy to uh, large institutions, and large institutions tend to reject and eject uh, strong manifestations. Now, that's very abstract. Let me give you some examples. Uh, if you look around today and look at some of the most popular movies in the past you know, 30 years, you will some of them have had very uh, impressive paranormal themes. For instance, Independence Day, Ghost, Ghostbusters, Six each of these have taken in uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in box office receipts. But if you look at the serious research on, say, UFOs, it is tiny. Uh, now, MUFON, for instance, the Mutual UFO Network, for in its uh, 2007 tax return, indicated that it had uh, expenditures on the order of $200,000. Now, this is the largest UFO organization in the country and certainly the most active and most prominent, but it has the annual budget of, say, a local church. It's really quite remarkable. You may have uh, $200 million taken in on some fictional movie, but in the factual scientific types of research, and MUFON really hardly meets even that level of uh, it can't even be considered entirely scientific, but it is ser- it's a serious attempt, but it's three orders of magnitude difference. It's tiny in comparison. You don't find that in other fields. You see you know, there are television shows and movies about medical doctors, but the medical industry, healthcare is trillion-dollar-a-year industry, plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of movies and TV shows on police, detectives and cops, etc. Yeah, those are those are actual disciplines, whereas ufology is a hodgepodge of people with interests who may or may not even belong to the word investigator. 
okay, that's right, but why is that? Why, why do we not find ufology in universities? There is a massive amount of interest in it. There's a huge popular uh, support for investigation, at least, at least on the surface, but you don't find that. And you can find all sorts of obscure things in academia that are taken seriously, that have no practical application whatsoever. But people have enormous interest in this, as witnessed by the uh, the movies and TV shows. The same thing is true uh, for other paranormal phenomena. Uh, extrasensory perception, mind over matter, has a tremendous popular interest but that you do not find taught or researched in university settings, by and large. It's very, very rare when it does occur. So what we have here is these phenomena are considered marginal. They do not fit within our ordinary, everyday society very well. Uh, people don't talk about them openly. They are ridiculed. They are... Most people are quite cautious about uh, talking to others about these experiences. And if you want to keep your job, you might keep, you know, might keep this rather low-key in the workplace. So one of the major aspects of these phenomena is its marginal position in society. That's been this way for hundreds of years, thousands actually. You can go back. 2,000 years ago, and you can see the same kinds of aversions, the same ridicule, and the same disputes about the reality of these phenomena. That is key. These phenomena, for thousands of years, have been looked upon as something a little bit different, something that should be kept a little bit distant from us, uh, and something that's not altogether respectable. If people don't realize that, People, researchers in this field don't realize that they are really missing the big picture. So part of what's missing for me from the big picture is what is it that you think is the cause of that ridicule? That's the wrong question to ask. Okay. You are asking about causes. Causes, you, that's, that, it's a mistake to ask that question. What you need to do is find out what happens, what occurs. And until one comes to that and gets a broad picture of what all uh, occurs around these phenomena and to the people who are actively involved with it, one won't be able to ask any meaningful questions. So asking the cause is at best premature and perhaps just outright wrong. This is the way the world is built. Okay, so what, get an interest in a topic like this and then suddenly reality bends around you and, and you warp personally or become this other thing? or Well, you certainly uh, could warp personally. Um, there's a very good book written in 1930 titled The Enchanted Boundary by Walter Franklin Prince, who was one of the most insightful psychical researchers of all time. And he pointed out that when people who have become quite established in other fields and made a... Uh, a good reputation and made substantial contributions, whether it's in academe or business or whatever, they come into the paranormal fields and they tend to lose critical judgment and the ability to function in these fields that if they had done it, had taken the same approach in other fields, they would have been laughed out of, uh, out of business or out of the academy. 
they just would not be taken seriously. People often lose the ability to uh, critically evaluate uh, the phenomena, especially if they are rather prominent in other fields. Mm. Uh, so yes, this does. Now that doesn't happen to everyone, but it happens very, very frequently. So again, it reinforces the marginality of these uh, fields. They're, they are conti they continue to be looked down upon. If you look at the uh, say the circulation figures for the MUFON journal, well, the Debunkers magazine has more than ten times as many subscribers. Mm -hmm. So the culture reacts strongly against <laughs> the. Uh, promotion of serious investigation or serious consideration of these phenomena. It's okay to have them sort of entertainment on TV, but when, they, when attention becomes more seriously focused, people begin to get a lot more anxious and worried about them. But we're, are, are we not allowed to ask why? Well, it's not, well, you could ask why, but it's not a fruitful question to ask. Well, how about this? You, you said for thousands of years, so what, what phenomena are you lumping together? Um, all of it? Well, if you, the paranormal phenomena, you could, you, if you look at the UFO phenomena, there are innumerable parallels to psychic phenomena, and there's a huge amount of overlap. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at Bigfoot, Bigfoot sightings sometimes occur in conjunction with UFO sightings. And you've said that you wanted science to study this, correct? How, how would science go about studying this? Well, you can start looking at what happens to people who have these experiences. That would be one way. You can also try to do laboratory-based research on some of these phenomena, and that is often meant with considerable resistance, especially in the academic world. And so one may need to step back and take sort of a sociological view of this mm -hmm. and just plot when do the phenomena seem to rise, when do they seem to fall. There's lots of ways. Uh, there's all sorts of areas in science and many different approaches. One doesn't have to do laboratory research. One could do participant observation studies. One could do case collection studies. Uh, the fields of science and technology studies, for instance, uh, has some useful approaches. They made some investigations to parapsychology. Diana White did her master's uh, thesis in an SDS program. She looked at the Common Commission report. Mm -hmm. Content report, rather. Well, now, you, you've been looking at this stuff since the 70s, correct? Yes. And have you met, you must have met a number of people, have you ever met anyone that has uh, gone off the deep end, so to speak, this way? And if so, have you talked to them about it? In terms yeah. of this trickster? Well, I've seen plenty of people who have lost critical judgment. Yeah, it's quite common. And do you wink and nudge at them and say, huh, there's my trickster theory? Well, yeah, I, I often can spot them when they come into the field. It's not hard. No, yeah. they will be essentially, okay, there's, this is a train wreck. It's going to happen. I can't tell if it's going to be two years or three or four years. But, yeah, it's often quite obvious. Jeff? As far as um, science studying this and, uh, and, and why they're not, I mean... Uh, 
going back, like you said, through history, this has always been ridiculed as a whole. The paranormal in general has been ridiculed as a whole, and uh, and therefore people don't want to talk about it uh, or want to avoid it at all costs, especially in scientific circles. But let's say, for instance, you know, uh, 1602, uh, someone uh, goes to a scientist and says that they've seen a flying saucer and this is what it looked like and these people got out of it and interacted with me. Isn't it um, almost, can't you almost make the leap to say that the science scientist probably would have laughed at him thinking that something like that is absolutely possible? Doesn't it become almost a scientific ego problem um, where science, you know, in years past, I'm not sure if it's still that way today, but in years past, you know, they've kind of had the lofty opinion of we know everything or we're, we're a lot further along in the curve of understanding science than you are. Um, and doesn't that then play into kind of like an ego thing where science is, of course, going to laugh at something like that because there's no, um, th- there's nothing but a story or a, um, uh, or, or somebody's account of seeing this or that in their home, like a ghost or something like, you know, of that ilk. Uh, and then as that transpires forward, um, at least in the in the, the you know the, the couple decades I've been around this stuff, I can tell you that most UFO researchers that I've met uh, who get a hold of a case that they think is good, uh, or they think that there's something genuinely going on, they become almost territorial about it, and therefore, when science you know if a scientist would ever come up and approach them about studying this you know uh, in a scientific method. I can almost guarantee they'd be refused that because, I mean, for Christ's sakes, most times they won't even let another UFO researcher in on their case to study it with them. So doesn't that all become ego-driven at that point? No, I don't don't buy the psychological explanation at all. Mm -hmm. I I think that's simply wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, To to attribute it to ego and uh, territory, no, I I don't believe that's that's what happens. there are a variety of reasons I reject that hypothesis. Um, mm-hmm. One is, and because that it, it's much too simple. Let, let me give you some other examples. And this is uh, my approach is much more sociological and anthropological. What you are take, you are assuming that these individuals are operating in some sort of conscious manner about this, or operating reasonably. And there are psychological motivations that if you could probe, you could sort of fix. That just doesn't seem to be the case. Um, So what happens in these, but what you're observing, I fully agree with you. Uh, What you will find in these groups, whether it be UFO investigators or uh, ghost researchers or the like, you will find a lot of hostility and competition between researchers and right. groups that do not hang together uh, for very long periods. This is right. another aspect of the term I called anti-structure. I've been an advisor to quite a number of ghost groups, and I get approached, and I often say, yes, of course, I'll be happy to serve as an advisor. And if the groups last more than six months to a year, I'm usually quite surprised. And I haven't been a, uh, an advisor to a group that's lasted much longer than a couple years. Huh. Now, there are lots of groups out there, but if you get involved in them, you will see this fractionating, this 
the internal hostilities, the schisms, and the like. It happens over and over and over again. Uh, you don't, and in the UFO field too, you do not see large groups doing effective investigations. Absolutely, you might right. have one or two people doing it by themselves, but once the group bec groups become a little bit larger, they tend to fall apart rather rapidly. Huh? Uh, if you look at the MUFON group, and MUFON itself does not do investigations. There are members that do it, but they do not, as a corporate body, it does not employ someone to go out and do scientific or, or scholarly or research or just plain investigations. They don't do it. The same is the truth for the American Society for Psychical Research or the Parapsychology Foundation. Uh, now, the groups that do tend to interact with these phenomena tend to be small. They tend to break up and they rarely have a long-term existence. Well, l let me throw this idea out to you. Um, because what you're describing, I mean, I've run into this in working in television, I've run into it working in regular offices, and I ran into it in the cafeteria when uh, when I was in middle school and high school. And it, nothing seems to change. It seems to just be about clicks. And so if you... Um, so one issue is this click mentality that we sort of naturally gravitate in, or we, we naturally come to when we are in group settings. But then the other is that the the things that we're talking about, ghost hunting, UFOs and all that, are sort of fringe elements. And who is attracted to a fringe topic but people who, uh, I think, reject, you know, reject the norm. And uh, let's okay, just say, well, let's well, just well, say well, undisciplined people well, well, that, <laughs> who are, are going to implode by nature. Uh, in a group setting. That's true to some degree, but you can find plenty of people in academe. You look at, say, the uh, SSE membership, that's the Society for Scientific Exploration. Um, most of, many of those people have doctoral degrees and have positions of, of professor, well, professorships in of quite a number of institutions all around the world. Yet they have not been able to establish a long, long-term institutions that do ongoing research into these uh, phenomena on a regular basis. Uh, there has been about 130 years of uh, psychical research. Uh, the Society for Psychical Research has carried out investigations, but still uh, barely limps along. The American Society for Psychical Research is doing virtually nothing in the last 10 years. The mm. uh, and the membership and the leadership of these organizations has been has been composed of some very accomplished people in other fields, but they do not successfully uh, institutionalize the research into these fields. So to attribute it to simply uh, inept people and in a People who are, and certainly there are people who are attracted, who are anti-authoritarian and do not want to work well in groups. There are plenty others who are. Nevertheless, even those groups do not survive. And when you speak to colleagues or researchers about this, what do what do they say? Well, some of them are in full agreement with me. Most of my most professional colleagues are, do not understand the approach I take. Most of them have uh, sort of a Western American view uh, of an individualistic psychological approach. Parapsychology, for instance, is heavily dominated by psychology, and I think that is 
really is a very ineffectual field to deal with these phenomena. And they do not, most many of them have doctoral degrees and are trained in particular styles of thinking that, and they often have grave difficulty understanding sociological ways of thought. It does take a while. It is, it is somewhat antithetical to their training and they just don't get it. But they don't have any way of thinking about the larger picture. They try to break it down with psychological explanations uh, and try to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work. Would you say that, that um, whatever is going on, that it is a, an alien communication of some sort, however you define alien? In other words, uh, let, let me let me well, flesh just... this out a little bit. Jeff and I got into sort of a little heated debate online with some people who are saying that, that this all boils down to um, everything from alien abductees to contactees to hoaxers to Martin Luther King to Gandhi to gray aliens, all of this is uh, some sort of alien communication with us that essentially the whole thing is controlled by some sort of, you know, trickster intelligence. For what purpose, I have no idea. But does that, does that hold sway with you? I mean, wh- what is the limit on on how you're thinking about this? Well, I could incorporate a fair amount of that into trickster theory, and certainly conspiracy theory is very attractive to many people in these fields. Uh, but where does that take us? Where I'd have to look at the theory and how it gets fleshed out. If you've got some particular hypotheses or predictions you can make, uh, that's fine. And there are predictions I can make with trickster theory. For instance, with an economic downturn, I predict an upsurge in interest in UFOs, and we are seeing that. I've been making this prediction publicly at our local UFO meetings for about a year now, and we certainly are seeing an upsurge of attendance at our meetings. Mm -hmm. And about a month ago, there was a conference over in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, that over 400 people showed up. Mm. So I'm expecting a continuing rise of interest in the UFO phenomena this year, and I expect an increased attendance at least at local groups. So, Okay, so then hoaxers, if, if someone is to hoax something, are they, are they hoaxing it because they are in, under this thing's control and, or influence? No, no, no this, there, I don't posit any type of control as such. This is what happens when certain phenomena tend to occur, there are other things that are likely to occur around it. When uh, psychic phenomena or UFO phenomena occur, one is likely to see a rise in hoaxing around it, especially as these phenomena get public prominence. Well, sure, but that's but that isn't that basic goes, psychology, though? I mean, you're saying you're throwing out psychology, I but that's, so. I predict that, too. I don't <laughs> think it's psychology. These are social phenomena. These are not individual phenomena. You you may be using the word psychology in a very broad sense, uh-huh. but uh, you also what you see is when social these psychic and paranormal and UFO phenomena are tend to erupt during times of transition, social transformation or social fraying of the, uh, the, the fabric of society when things get a little bit uh, unstable and uncertain. 
one is likely to see an upsurge of interest and uh, occurrence of these mm-hmm. phenomena. Do you think that there is a reality to the phenomena themselves, or do you think it's all oh, interrelated? Yeah. I mean, okay, let's say there are beings that are... I'm asking, are there beings in a ship doing beings in a ship things, and if so, <laughs> why do they care whether okay. whether we're poor? Okay, I, I, I do not believe that UFOs are nuts and bolts craft uh, piloted by something like flesh and blood ET aliens. No, I don't think that's happening. I think it's very different. I think to understand these phenomena, one needs to study myth. And there are some very interesting theories about myth. And I'm not saying that these phenomena are fictional. They are real, but they do not follow the laws of what we consider to be the rational world. The irrational is still real. It operates in in a very different way than what we consider formal logic, because logic automatically assumes certain boundaries and divisions and categories. These phenomena tend to disrupt those divisions, categories, and classification schemes that are inherently required for logic. Do you think that there is a division between them and us? That's a very good question. And there is a division, but it is blurry, and it shifts. Uh, The phenomena are very heavily influenced by our beliefs, our anxieties, our wishes, our fears. And so it is shaped by us. It also, in turn, shapes us. We see this in laboratory-based parapsychological research. Uh, People's expectations of beliefs uh, shape the results of experiments. And we see this in uh, just case studies and talking to people who've had these phenomena. As they become more fearful, the phenomena may increase and may become more negative. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for saying that. <laughs> Thank you very much for saying that. <laughs> so these phenomena, are they, are, is there a division between us and them? Yes, to some degree, but it is not clear just how much. Uh, for instance, in some of the uh, theories on table tilting and spirit phenomena, the uh, in science phenomena, the expectations of the sitters tend to strongly influence the types of uh, table movement that uh, one gets. And as one becomes more skeptical, in some in groups I've been in, people try sometimes to be more skeptical, and the phenomena tends to die down. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in, um, in I don't know, science quantum mechanics that you could point us to that, that might make sense of this or begin to make sense of that type of relationship with another type of being? Well, that's a little bit... Uh, I don't think quantum mechanics is going to give you too much on that. However, there is some interesting theory uh, by... Um, physicist, uh, now deceased, uh, but his name was Evan Harris Walker, and he published a series of papers back in the 70s and 80s on quantum mechanics and uh, psychic uh, phenomena. And I go into that to some degree in my book, but I'm not a physicist, and I can't speak to that uh, really effectively. But there have been a few other people since then, uh, Dick Bierman, who's a physicist over in the Netherlands, has written some, a bit on observational theories. 
but it's not a very large uh, part of parapsychology these days. But if you want the interesting theoretical work on that, go back to the 1970s and 1980s. Jeff, did you have something to add? Well, I can say this. Um, George, what I, what I heard um, uh, was a, a, a description by you that I, that I got from Jeremy about the, the between, the transitional aspect of this whole undercurrent uh, going on. And I was telling Jeremy earlier today that going back over my own history with this UFO thing, um, I did remember at least two, two things in two major instances. One was uh, a sighting and encounter with a disc in a very rural area with my wife, who was a witness to just about the entire encounter. Um, and that was almost directly after our first son was born, and our only son, by the way. Um, and then there was another sighting with uh, my wife and my son at a local park during daylight hours of a, uh, a pretty good-sized silver ball-type object hanging in the air, which um, was, was really only visible to me uh, from my vantage point until I literally drug my wife over in front of my eye view and then she could see it, but it almost seemed to be in a like a tunnel vision type of thing. That was directly after her mother passed away. Um, is that the kind of between um, life experiences that you're talking about that kind of make this ebb and flow into uh, a, a, an experience like that? Y- yes, those would be a couple really good examples. There are many, many others, of course. But that is the kind of thing I would expect. I would expect to see an elevated uh, rate of uh, paranormal phenomena during or near times of transition. And certainly in psychic research, they've found that around times of death, apparitional sightings uh, tend to rise. Uh, widows and widowers are more likely to see uh, or have experiences. Uh, now, one can than, than uh, other people. Now, one could always attribute a psychological explanation, a wish fulfillment or something like that. Sure. But with, with these other uh, events that we've seen, times of transition, I do expect that there, there is legitimate phenomena there. Mm. Uh, also, the teenage years, puberty, was a, is a time when poltergeist phenomena are more likely to erupt. Okay. And in earlier cultures, there were rituals to move a person from the childhood state to the adult state. That it was recognized as a dangerous time, mm. and that there these the people undergoing this transition from child to adult were novices in this initiatory process, and the rituals were partly to help along this transition, but also to help protect society from the dangerous powers that could erupt there. So, okay. yeah, there are. I could go on and on about the, the, the concept of transition and change, and certainly even in laboratory parapsychology, we've seen conditions where there's novelty, there's change, even change in mental state, tend to facilitate uh, these phenomena. So your examples mm-hmm. are really good, and that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Well, I think the other thing that that um, that literally just popped into my head was something that you said about um, people in uh, apartment buildings or condominiums and that kind of 
there's kind of, uh, I don't know, stop off between a house and an apartment, uh, a permanent home uh, versus uh, something that people are moving in and out of at a higher rate than a home, than, than a single family home, for instance. Um, and, and pretty much all our listeners should know by now that the last place I lived before I bought my house was a condominium. And it was horribly active in the way of manifestations of some very strange things that I don't think always equated to the UFO thing, but rather to, um, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, one of the things that we saw, my wife and I both were in the living room and saw an arm float between us, uh, covered in a, um, uh, in a, in a flannel shirt pattern. Like it was just the arm of someone going between us. Uh, it was damned obvious, I mean, what it was, because we both said flannel at the same time. Uh-huh. Uh, but also, uh, my mom and myself, on my 40th birthday, now this, again, might figure into your, uh, your scope with this, is that on my 40th birthday, my mother and I were sitting across from each other in the living room. And if we want to get real weird, here's the description of this. There was a black object about six inches off the floor, about the size of a shoebox, and shaped about the same as well. That was, it looked as if it had a, had a blur filter run on it. Uh, it was fuzzy. It was out of focus. And it passed mm. between my mother and I on the floor. My dog snapped at it. Uh, it then took off down the hallway towards the bathroom where my wife and I had seen several times it appearing. Uh, uh, it appeared often during the day, just making dinner or leaving the house, that you would see someone walking into the bathroom. Uh-huh. But this was, a, this was a small box that just moved, it glided right above the floor. Uh-huh. Um, and and that, uh, that was my 40th birthday. That actually happened. So, again, I guess that kind of figures into the transitional... A birthday, or you know, yeah. you know semi temporary residence, I guess you could say. Um, but with all of these things, we're not, and you're not really saying that you know the reasons why these things seem to happen, or are you? Uh, uh, no, I, uh, why is not a question I, I answer, or even okay. Answer. It's just that uh, they do happen around those kinds of, of things. That's the undercurrent right. that seems to raise its head. Okay. Also, when these phenomena happen, they can provoke transition or instability. Mm. So they happen together. Um, so transition, change, instability, flux, all tend to be compatible with these phenomena, and these phenomena com- are compatible with it. When things become more structured, of uh, they tend to diminish. For instance, I do, in, in years past, and still do a little bit of counseling for people who've had these experiences. And it's fairly frequent that I ask, well, what's your job situation? Or how do you live, you know, what do you do on a daily basis? And often I try to recommend, you know, get a more regular job, uh, set up your schedule so it is more uh, regular and scheduled rather than, because I, Council of member of people who have lost their job or tend not to like to do, keep the schedule, and that generally does help diminish the phenomena if it's annoying to them. Is to mm. just be more structured in their everyday life. 
okay. when they're out traveling around, you know, loafing or whatever, and I've had plenty of fans who sort of <laughs> lived on the edge, they tend to have uh, more phenomena occur than, uh, than friends of mine who work uh, 8 to 5. How about... Um how about people, and I've kind of said this about my own experiences, and I've taken heat for this um, b- before, although I think people are maybe starting to come around a little bit better to understanding what I mean by saying this. Um, I've noticed in my little corner of paranormal world here that it seems almost that the more time or the more devotion uh, or the more effort that I put into studying the UFO thing or the alien thing, uh, studying a case, um, talking about the the much deeper, much more personal aspects of it, that that seems to be when the phenomena seems to take a notice and then somehow manifest something uh, occurring. So in other words, like, you know, the more you give, the more you get is what I call it. But do you find that to be consistent? Yeah, as you get more enmeshed in in the uh, uh, phenomena and in and and in and in an investigation, it tends to start feeding it and it starts to occur. Now, there's at some point where I think if it gets routine and you were it was you did it more perfunctory and were not so involved, it would probably shut down. But mm-hmm. it sounds like you get very much more engaged and consciously focused on it uh, mm-hmm. and involved with it. Uh, yes, that's certainly been my experience, uh, too. And, and, I mean, and it's not always that, the, the, and of course, the first words out of people's mouths when you say that, well, well, of course you're looking for it, so you're like the kid in bed at night with a bump in the night, and you're listening for it, so your ears are perked. Well, there's some, and, some, you know, some part of that. that that's absolutely I, true, but most of what that I've seen come out of that kind of, of scenario yes. has been... Yes very in-your-face things that wouldn't be easily mistakable. So. Right. No, I, I, I fully agree with you. Hmm. But, see, again, this is, it, it, there's that dual aspect. It's very easily written off because it's like self-fulfilling prophecy or wish fulfillment, and hmm. there is that aspect there, and I have experienced that myself, but I'm also convinced that some of the, the phenomena do tend to erupt more strongly than as well. Hmm. But again, it has this sort of self-obscuring aspect or it's easily discounted because of that. And also people who tend to be more fantasy-prone and less critical may indeed have more of these phenomena occur to them. However, other people can discount them very easily because of that. Uh, Right, exactly. Exactly. So, George, let me ask you this, because I remember when I met you at the conference, you told me, you know, you and Biedney and Ritzman just don't, the thing that you guys don't get is that, you know, you, you want to sort of police the field, but uh, but these people are the field. <laughs> the people that you don't want are the yeah. field. And I thought you meant that this is just a field full of fuck-ups. Uh, but what you really mean, I think, is that the field produces this in people whether they're fuck-ups or not and so there's no policing that so if that's the case then what do you do about um personal responsibility or people's responsibility to keep it honest is there anything we can do well well, certainly you can do uh exposes and critical analysis and it is useful to have a few people and establish a group who try to undertake some scientific or scholarly uh, type of an approach or study of this phenomenon. And when you have that, then there usually are 
norms and standards that you try to meet. So it's useful to have a group, that, but you can't do it for the whole field. But if there's something like the Center for UFO Studies at one time tried to do that, it certainly failed miserably. The Society for Scientific Exploration tries to do that on, among academics. It isn't terribly successful, but it's a bit more successful than some. Uh, so it, and they do put out a referee journal, which is useful. Again, it's not very high quality compared to some of the things that have been done in the past. But yes, you do need to have some kind of network, something probably more than an invisible college to doing that. Uh, one of the problems with modern-day UFO research is that there is pretty much a vacuum of leadership. So someone coming into the field it has a very difficult time trying to figure out who are the more reliable researchers. And that takes a long time to figure out if you don't have an institution or a group that is recognized as an authority. And that's one of the problems in the paranormal fields. It's very difficult to establish who is really the authority or the expert. Hmm. And it's become more so that way in the last 10 to 15 years, in my estimation. So you think it behooves us to uh, uh, stop trying to hold accountable <laughs> certain people and just go on and do our own thing and be done with it? Well, I think it's useful to hold some of these people accountable. I have mm -hmm. no objection to that, and I've certainly done more than my share. Of that. <laughs> right. I, I've written some pretty stinging critiques uh, right. in my career. Uh, so I, I do think that's useful. But one, sh but that's just part, but I think, and I think that's an important part, but there's more to do than just that. And one oh, absolutely. To, one has to to balance, well, what will, what can I learn, what can we learn by doing these kinds of critiques? And sometimes I think you can learn a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, I certainly wouldn't discourage you. Uh, that's part of this whole field and the game that we're involved in. When you first started looking into this back in the 70s, did you, did you have the same theory about it that you have now, or how did that evolve through time? No, um... I didn't have too much of a theory, but in the late, in the early 80s, uh, late William Broad, who was a, and still is, a, one of the best researchers in parapsychology, came out with a theory of lability and inertia. And he was talking more about physical systems and maybe psychological systems, uh, things that are more in flux and change more readily tend to be more amenable to psychic influence. So that was, I thought, that formulation was very elegant. It was simple, but addressed a lot of phenomena. So I kept, I always kept that in the back of my mind. And then I came across uh, the book, uh, Synchronicity, Science, Myth, and the Trickster, which talked about this trickster character in mythology and related it to synchronicity. So that, so it tied mythology into some of these phenomena. And then finally I came across an article by an anthropologist named Van uh, Reedhead, which, which talked about this concept of anti-structure. And that tied in to a particular trickster in a uh, a monastery out in Pennsylvania. Uh, this is uh, a historical case. So I 
started seeing, okay, we've got anti-structure relates to this instability nature and, and the concept of uncertainty, instability, uh, fluctuation, time to paranormal phenomena. So those three, uh, an article, two articles in a book tied these ideas together for me. I saw the links between them, and that led me to fully develop uh, trickster theory. Uh, does anti-structure have its own sense of structure, or is it chaos? Yes, it. Yes, no. It 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 does have. Anti-structure is opposed to structure. One cannot exist without the other, and so one has to consider anti-structure in opposition. But you cannot have anti-structure without structure, okay. and vice versa. So it's a different way of thinking. It comes out more from anthropology and literary theory than it does from the sciences. Does it tie into karma? Mm, no, not particularly. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, the, the, there is quite a lot of theoretical work. Again, it's in some rather obscure anthropological uh, writings in some uh, religious studies. It's not terribly well-known these days. Mm -hmm. And it takes a fair amount of time to go through the literature on it and the strands of uh, thinking that fed into it. There is an area in anthropology called structuralism, which had a major influence on it. But that's a long story to describe just the interrelations between uh, these ideas. Let me ask you, I mean, you've been at this for a while, and you still go to conferences and hang out at, um, you know, various uh, small group meetings and things like that. What is it that you get out of it still after all these years? Well, they're really interesting people. They're fun to hang out with. Uh, and I, if I'm going to theorize about this and make predictions, I need to have my fingers on the pulse. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is get out and mingle with these people, see what they're saying, see what they're writing, what are they like. And I don't believe one can do good uh, theoretical work without that. Right. Now, there are a lot of academics who try to do it without that, but my own feeling is uh, you've got to go meet the people. And I've been doing that ever since I got into this field. I probably know a lot more psychics than most parapsychologists. You know, I go out to dinner with them. I have them over at my house. They come over. I go to their homes uh, fairly frequently, whereas most parapsychologists don't do that at all. In fact, Many of them avoid contact with people who uh, identify themselves as psychics. You've uh, you've alluded to that you've had some experiences yourself, and I'm just wondering if if you've noticed that whatever. Well, maybe you can tell us what what it is that happened. But does the phenomena treat you differently for what you know than somebody who uh, believes it's you know takes it more face value? I don't think so. Uh, I you know I've had. The experiences I've had, some of the strongest have been in laboratory situations, uh, and I don't have huge amounts of phenomena happening to me. Uh, you know, it's, there were periods in my life when more happened, but uh, I just don't have enough to really make a reasonable statement on that. Mm -hmm. And to answer your question, I really can't give you much of an answer. Oh, well, that's fine. Well, I'm still all right. I, so I guess you, we're you know we've come full circle here. To uh, I still don't know what the trickster is, other than 
It's uh, just something that happens. I mean, I I, I know we've okay, well, talked around it, but we still you, if we never get to the why, then okay. Well, you can't get to a why. You can get to a what or a how. Okay. But uh, what I in, if I were to give a definition of uh, the trickster, I say it's an archetype, and by that I mean it's an abstract pattern. It can occur within an individual, within small groups, or even entire cultures. What are the characteristics of this pattern? One of the characteristics is eruption or emergence of psychic phenomena. The second one is deception. Deception often occurs when psychic phenomena also erupts. A third is instability and uncertainty. When a person is more uncertain or unstable, the phenomena is more likely to erupt. When there's change in their uh, situation, change and transition, one is a little bit more vulnerable to deception because one may have lost one's bearings a bit. Uh, one is more susceptible to psychic phenomena. Another is a uh, violation of sexual taboos. Uh, change in sexuality uh, may tend to occur with these others. Another is marginality, being on the edge, being outside of the mainstream. When these phenomena tend to occur together, whether it's in, in, in an individual or with a small group or within a larger group, one is likely to see these other phenomena occur, including paranormal phenomena. Now, again, these are abstract. It's a little hard to get. You have to read some particular examples, and I've got some of those in my book. To, and as you live and interact with psychics, you will see these phenomena tend to occur more frequently. Among, uh, For instance, um, mediumship. There is a fair number of, uh, especially in England, uh, gay mediums. Uh, so there is a blurring of sexual categories there. And some of these people are very impressive. So, but again, that is, being gay is a violation of a sexual taboo. Don't I know it. Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, well, let me ask you, does your um, your definition of trickster, would, would John Keel, would um, Jacques Vallée do... Would would you all agree that that is the definition of trickster? Are you all? I don't know the if they thing? would, but 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 my my definition comes out of the anthropological literature. I draw on some from Christine Downing, who's written on the trickster. Who's a union? I think people with a union orientation would understand that. The people who uh, read and follow the works of uh, Carl Jung. Uh, so this is not something I invented on my own. No, there, no, I'm just, I'm just wondering if, if there is a unified trickster theory, because it, it sounds completely different than what we were arguing about, and people were using that same word trickster. And um, Well, it, it, well, certainly it, it's a little bit difficult to define, because it, the, the nature of trickster itself tends to defy category, blur boundaries, and cause disruption. So, yes, it, by its very nature, it's hard to classify, but that is its nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of theoretical uh, work on that. Again, I cannot present this in an hour's presentation, especially uh, just uh, orally. Sure. 
but what I am saying is drawn from very mainstream psychological literature, anthropological literature, folklore, mythology, and the like. The trickster often will personify, or in mythology it is uh, personified, uh, whether it's a, a, a person or like the raven, coyote, uh, hare, uh, Mercury of the Romans, uh, Hermes of the Greeks, and there are innumerable others. Mm-hmm. It's personified, so but it also a, seems to, uh, in most cases that I've read, seems to deal with spirituality. It seems to be about keeping things in question uh, so oh, that yeah. you can break through and have that whatever enlightenment experience. Uh, oh, no, uh, no, no doubt about and that. so do you think uh, that that is related fact, to this? Yes, yes. In fact, uh, Hermes was the guide of souls. And would ask, uh, and some tricksters would go between this world and the underworld and guide souls or guide souls to the heavens. Uh, again, it's a very different way of thinking about uh, these phenomena. That would be the why, wouldn't it? Pardon? Didn't we just come up with the why? Why is this happening? No. No, you, 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 get, a, you, get, you get a what or how, but you don't get a why. All right, Jeff? Huh. Uh, I, I've been dying to ask this question, and, and uh, uh, a couple of episodes or so ago, we had um, Dr. Dennis McKenna on, and uh, oh. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Terrence McKenna, that would be his brother. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and I've uh, all of a sudden kind of tripped onto a fascination with, uh, no pun intended, um, people who have used psychedelic drugs such as ayahuasca or the psilocybin mushroom um, and had pretty intense experiences that involved small beings, that involved a voice, um, who, uh, well, basically, a, a lot of people who've had that kind of breakthrough experience are relating this closely to uh, the UFO abduction scenario. Yeah. Uh, saying that there is a definite connection there. Now, I don't know because I'm yet to partake of any of that, and Jeremy as well, but we're seriously contemplating the issue um, because there is no way to find out other than to do it and find out. Uh-huh. But that also, at least for uh, uh, Terrence McKenna, in one of his books, he talks about having a sighting of what he is positive was the Adamski disc, which he knew uh-huh. at the time was, as he called, malarkey. Uh-huh. Uh, and he said it seemed to contradict itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you feel that the whole psychedelic experience relates to a non-psychedelic sighting uh, with something that seems to be so completely self-contradictory, where does how does that kind of speak to you? Well, I I think that's great, and it, it certainly suggests we are in the realm of myth here, and that mythology is a much better way to understand this than our rational categories, because these things are flowing together. You've got this deception from Adamski flowing into some kind of real experience, and the categories of real and imagination, fact and fiction, are blurred. That is the essence of the trickster. Blurring these kinds of categories that are fundamental to rationality is what the trickster does. Uh, And hence, our rational worldview tends to fray 
and our rational categories are no longer useful in understanding this. We must go, must look at it in a very different light. So when you when you hear real. right when you when you hear of someone talking about a psychedelic experience and talking about these beings and so on and so forth, are we talking about the same? trickster type of thing going well, on? Well, we're we're certainly talking about trickster manifestations here. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Terry Mullis, for instance, who won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, uh, mm. also had an experience, and quite well known. Mm. Uh, so yes, this, these, are, these are manifestations of this trickster archetype. The, for instance, the inner and outer is blurred uh, in the psych- psychedelic experience. The fact in fiction is also blurred. And it's also very easy for people to dismiss it because people will say it's simply and only hallucination. Right. Altered perceptions, yeah. Mm -hmm. The uh, altered states of consciousness and these types of things are something I've not dealt with much at all in my texture theory. So it's... uh, But they, they do fit, but... I, and certainly shamanic experience would tend to reinforce that because shamans were often tricksters and they often sought out psychedelic and altered states of consciousness. Right. You know, I, 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 see, I see exactly what George is saying about the trickster being a, and I think of it, my, my terminology in my head is, is, is an undercurrent that runs through this that, you know, at certain times, it you know the, the the manifestation or the perception of some of these things is relative to the individual at times. So, I mean, I I, I get that because that kind of jives with what I've been saying about the 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 beings or whatever we have perceived seeming to only have as much ability to enter our reality as we give to them. Um. So I'm I'm seeing the thread that George is talking about running throughout all of this stuff, um, and like I said, even in a in a really funny way, and and I don't know if this is coincidental or not, but uh, George, I was telling Jeremy about a dog that I used to have. She was a Hawaiian cage hound, just by far the most lovable dog you'd ever want to have, but she was the most ruthlessly disobedient. Uh, <laughs> Um, don't follow the rules, uh, um, fuck you kind of dog that you'd ever hope to meet. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, and we named her Maui <laughs> hmm. uh, due to being a Hawaiian Keisha. And I saw uh, today online that one of the uh, names for the trickster in the Hawaiian culture is Maui. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm, I, I see that kind of stuff, and it just kind of you know, makes me cock my head like a dog because I see this kind of, uh, and, and that could be a, a completely different matter than this, but it's, um, uh, I do find it fascinating what, what you're seeing as far as the, um, as far as this concurrent thread running throughout all of these different experiences. And it almost seems to me like you're saying in a way that the trickster is the one holding the keys to the answer here. Well, I certainly think uh, that the trickster will throw, and the whole notion will throw an enormous amount of light on what's happening here. Yes, I, I do agree with it. And just if you look in mythology, you look at American Indian lore, you will see, you know, this innate connection with these phenomena and and the trickster in myth. And it's just for, it, it's all over the world. Hmm. 
So uh, it's it's just so frequent that yes, it, it, it this is the way one has to think now. The problem is the Western world view views myth as purely fiction, and mm. that is where a serious mistake is made. It's a different way of thinking. It's almost antithetical, or it's very, very different, and for most people, it's almost incomprehensible. It takes a while to sit and think, ponder the experiences, and mm. then it starts to make a little bit of sense. But it is really, I mean, the undercurrent here that I'm, that I'm, that keeps popping into my head is that this is a, this is almost a demonstrable way of seeing how one single strand of reality works. Yeah, I think so. Awesome. (laughs) There you have it, folks. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I don't think, you know, it's very difficult to convey the ideas succinctly. That's why my book is so long. And mm. I'm not sure I'm at all successful here. But uh, friend, even when I give my supposedly coherent lectures, friends tell me they need to listen to it at least three times before they start to get it. <laughs> so I apologize to any listeners who might be completely scratching their head. Oh, it takes a while. Us food for thought. And wh- what is the name of your book again, and where can people pick it up? Okay, well, go to my website, tricksterbook.com. The title of the book is The Trickster and the Paranormal. There's plenty of little introduct- introductory snippets there, uh, as well as the full introduction to the book and a number of my professional papers. So you'll get some idea of what it's about. Uh, I put quite a fair amount online. Great. Well, thank you very much for spending an hour with us. Is there anything that we haven't covered uh, in our ineptitude that that you wanted to say or address? Oh, yes. By the way, I saw your your Amazon collection of books online, and you were very heavily promoting Bud Hopkins' book, Witnessed. Are you still thinking that is the book on abductions? (laughs) Um, you're talking about at cultureofcontact.com? Um, no, this, oh, I think it was on Amazon.com. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a little, uh, store of things yeah. that I've read or whatever. Um, do I still think, um, yeah, I mean, as, as far as I know, it, it in terms of uh, a case study, as far as I know, you know, I know people who know her, Linda Cordell, and, uh, you know, swear she's the real deal and all that. Do you, you, you know differently? Well, then I recommend you go to my website and download my paper on that case. <laughs> In a good way or a bad I way? <laughs> I, ha- I have a 25-page paper that I wrote with Rich Butler and Joe Stafula. It's up on my website, and there is a, a large section of one chapter in my book devoted to that case. All right. Well, I will definitely check that out. Um, anything else, Jeff? Anything else? Nope, that's it. All right. George, really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us tonight. Really, well, do. I appreciate the appreciate the chance. It's fantastic to think about. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You're listening to my good friends Jeremy Vaney and Jeff Ritzman laugh their way through ufology on Paratopia, the UFO show for the rest of us. And welcome. So, Jeff. Yes, Jeremy. 
What do you make of our friend George Hansen? I like George. George is nice. That is a uh, completely different trickster scenario than than the one that we were having civil discourse about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Over the past few weeks. Oh, God. With our good friends. Uh, who shall remain nameless. Might as well. No everyone knows who they are. Right. And, uh, but mainly because I, I don't want them to think we're attacking them again. Right. Um... That'd be Al Limberg and Leslie. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's a joke. It's a joke, people. Calm down. Um, so, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, here's what's interesting to me. I don't necessarily disagree with anything I heard from him. However, without giving a why, uh, you're just you are just describing uh, sociological, anthropological psychological, all other kinds of logical thing. You're just describing the thing that's happening. So essentially the trickster in, in, in that scenario um, isn't a personification, isn't about anything. It, it's just a word that you're using to mean the description of what happens when people get involved in this stuff. Um, right? I get it a little bit different than that. Um, it's, it's the, like I, like I said to him, what it was that I, I, I'm, I'm feeling it as more as a mechanism for, um, how reality works more along the lines of, and, and not, not the whole of reality, but, but at least as it applies to, to this stuff, to the paranormal in general, you know, it seems to me that that the trickster, I, I think that's, I mean, for me, that's a bad name for that because that does kind of personify it to something of the entity of some sort or so. And it's not right. that it's a, it's a, 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 it's an undercurrent thread of, of thought and, uh, uh, and almost a, like he's saying, a predictive way to say, okay, when we look at, uh, change and, and, and social discords or, you know, uh, any, any other kind of, of upswing in a, in a radically different way, like, such as the economy right now is in the toilet. Uh, he's expecting to see paranormal in general rising, and it has risen. I mean, it's been rising for a while. Uh, you know, the war and uh, the Bush administration and all of that uh, that's pretty much when all of this, you know, ghost hunters and ghost adventures and UFO hunters and all that stuff was all born out of that that time period. Um, and when I think back to uh, uh, to to the last what I remember as being a wave where you had sightings on TV, you had. Uh, uh, best evidence caught on tape. There was a flurry of UFO specials and all that kind of thing when it, when it again had that popular um, eye for a while, that public eye. Um, again, that was back, uh, uh, you know, when the, when the, the Iraq war happened and, and we had uh, uh, the 80s. This is when things were absurdly good, uh, at least as far as I was concerned, you know, to look at it from my perspective. Um, that that we had another upsurge and that kind of thing. It it seems to be like like he says when there's this real good structure 
and a lot of uh, uh, a lot of routine and, and, and a structured life or a structured uh, world. Uh, that's lock it out. Yeah, yeah. It but what, so then, you know, why aren't people, um, you know, in in these third world countries who are starving to death and have nothing to do all day, seeing UFOs left and right? Are they? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't seem to be a big thread, does it? Uh, no, I mean, it's, um, uh, and I'm, I mean, I, repeat that again. I must have missed something. <laughs> no, I'm saying why, you know, countries that are far poorer than, than America okay. right. are not um, inundated with UFO reports, as far as I know, or uh, abduction-type reports. So how do we, I mean, is this just an American phenomenon? Uh, maybe in the way it's perceived. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I have. I mean, I've heard this before. I, I haven't. I, I can't remember if I've heard it about um, society, but I've heard it about experiencers. I've heard it said that that you know, experiencers have abduction type stuff happen to them at uh, critical, stressful points in their lives. Sure. I don't know. I don't know if that's. That hasn't necessarily been my experience. I can think of a couple that that definitely ring true, but I can think of many more that don't, so I don't... I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily yeah. think it has to be, uh, you know, a stressful thing. I mean, when I think back, you know, my, my big question for me has been, why five years old? Uh, why did all that have to happen at that point? Why did it start then? Or at least that's the memory I have of it starting then for me. Um... And, and that would be, you know, that's the end of the five years old is the age where you start kindergarten. That's the age where you, you know, you're not home all day with mom. You're going off with some somebody else with a bunch of other kids. And, you know, when I thought about that today in, in listening to, uh, to George's little speech that you'd give me, um, that was the first thing that kind of popped him on. I'm like, wow, that, that is kind of a transitional period for me, five years old. Um, I mean, like he's like he said, you know, forget the uh, the what, <laughs> forget what it is. This is how it, you know. Maybe there's maybe this is the doors that we've been talking about and windows of of manifestations being able to occur at a certain time. Maybe this is the latch on the window. Is is that kind of thing? It, I don't think it makes it so that this is not an external uh, thing. I think it. I think it. It speaks to it being uh, intimately involved with us, which is. I mean that's pretty much along my line of thinking with this is that we've we've got more to do with this than we previously thought. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it sounds like I mean if you think about um, you know particles uh, have particle wave duality. If you're talking about something from another dimension or something that comes in through into perception through DMT or the pineal gland or something like that, um, and we have things blocking that, we have things that are particle. Uh (laughs) or, you know, we've got brain activity that's blocking that, what would it take? Would it take a clearing of the mind for for these new waves to ride in and become particles, essentially for what would be, um, to our senses, non-material, manifesting, making it material Mm -hmm. in that way? So I don't know what am I trying to say here. So if if you have if you have this other you know dimension or something, if you have this sort of antimatter, as it were, uh-huh. uh, to them, they're just as real as we are. But but they're fluid and we're solid, right? Let's just let's sure. just put it this way. Yeah. If they're fluid and we're solid, and that that's how we perceive it anyway, mm-hmm. uh, and they would perceive it the opposite way, maybe. Um, 
then then they would need us to unblock something, mm-hmm. the dam in us, open the door for the fluid to come in, yeah. <laughs> and then become a solid in in here in in this world space. That's essentially what we're talking about, right? That's yeah. what all this world as down bizarre to. as that sounds. Yeah, I guess so. So there we go. We just solved it. End of Peritopia. <laughs> Call in the guards. We have the brass ring. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, you know, I mean, that's it. Sounds as logical as anything else, but n- nothing in this field has been that way. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's. Um, uh, I think that. I mean, I, I see it, you know, there, again, there's there's this pervasive thread going through this stuff that um, I think as we're talking to these different people, I mean, George is clearly within the paranormal field, you know, whereas Dr. McKenna was not um, so much in that field. Um, but I think both of them have given us, you know, d- decent threads to follow with this thing. And... Uh, and I think they both agree on I, I think they do, points. yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's like I was, um, you know, I was thinking the other day that, uh, um, and I had told you about an experience. I don't, I, I, I want to talk about the, 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 the what, but I don't really want to go into the whole experience thing, but uh, this is like a recent one. And, um, and, and it kind of, it, it kind of makes me think listening to George talk and, and again, listening, talking to Dr. McKenna, um, about this kind of stuff. And I haven't even written him about this yet. So that's why I want to kind of wait. But, um, I had the overwhelming impression in this experience as weird as it sounds, uh, that, the at least for me, and again, my opinion, my my perception of all of this is that um, it may it, that that this whole thing may start in our mind, but it ends up on the floor, uh, standing uh, or flying, if you want to think of it that way. Um, that uh, that there is some kind of perceptual window. That at least the, the 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 experiences I've had are possibly coming through, but it may be starting in the mind and materializing on the floor, and totally separate from me. Um, so yeah, that'll that'll completely fuck up everything that we've been talking about. Um, but I I see a. Uh, and, and, and this is, I mean, goes back to the, how weird all this stuff is to begin with. But, um, you know, I keep thinking that, uh, I keep thinking that the whole time we've been saying, you know, this stuff's a lot weirder than we think. I think we're starting to get into just a, like dipping our pinky toe into the, the pool of extraordinary weirdness. Um, and I think George is, definitely at least got himself up into his knees with just how bizarre uh, this thing is. And it's not like it's not giving out constants. There are constants, as he pointed out. There's this undercurrent of the trickster, if that's, you know, the terminology that they want to use. I don't, you know, like I said, I think that's kind of a bad term for me. I don't, I don't, 
that really confused me. I mean, I asked you, what the hell is a trickster? What does that mean? Um, uh, but there's, there's definitely something that is intricately uh, connected to us that is a portion of how this stuff happens and how it gets here. Hello? Yes? <laughs> I guess that's where I respond. If you can. I mean, it's yes. it's, it's just an incoherent I thought. I agree. Well, I, I think it's, it's hard to respond specifically unless you do tell people what your experience was. All right. Because I think it's so... It, it's so weird that it's hard to even picture as you describe it. Well, I think I got it better now, so All that right. maybe I can explain it better. First, before you do that, let me just say, uh, let me ask you, the black box that floats down the hallway, yeah. did you see that any other time or just that No, one? just that once. So on your 40th birthday, you saw a, uh, a birthday gift. <laughs> that was what I thought when you said it this time. Huh. <laughs> but, oh, I get the trick now. <laughs> it's a present. <laughs> but go ahead. It was a box. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I didn't get to open it though. Um, uh, you would have found well, you, you, you inside. You, you can't know the what, right? I mean, <laughs> what's in the box? I can't tell you that. Um, <laughs> <It's a> MacGuffin. <laughs> well, um, I think I mentioned on on a prior show about the hum that I heard. Uh, so if you were listening to one of those, uh, I don't know how many episodes ago it was, but um, uh, you were telling McKenna about it. Actually. Was it okay? So it was a McKenna episode. Um, I heard this uh, undulating hum, and uh, uh, and it got very loud, and it seemed to be right above the house, and um, seemed to start from far away from on the other side of the house, and it gradually got louder and louder to where I could feel. Uh, the percussion of the undulate um, on my pillow next to my ear, uh, but it wasn't definitely deafeningly loud. It was just the 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 bass was so thick. Um, and then saw someone uh, standing towards the foot of the bed. Uh, lower half of my legs didn't seem to want to work. Um, I was most definitely awake. Um, and that person, uh, whatever it was, said. Um, Something to the effect of, and I hesitated even to say this because I, I feel like I wasn't, um, I mean, almost like I was forcibly put to sleep or something like that. And and I remember that that my last coherent um, input at that point was, uh, where does it hurt or hold still or something to that effect. Uh, anyway, that's that's all I remember of that. Um, well, uh, some nights later, um, again, uh, I'm a night owl, so I'm usually up until two or three in the morning. Jeremy will attest to that. Um, and I went upstairs, got in bed, you know, brushed my teeth the whole bit, got in bed. And, um, uh, and as I'm laying there, I, uh, I heard the hum. But it, it it seemed very far away, um, and uh, I was so freaking absolutely dead tired. I I I don't know how else to put it. Other than I really didn't give a shit, uh, and I just shut my eyes and and I must have went to sleep. Uh, and I started to dream at some point, um, 
you know, well, it can't have been that, it can't, it couldn't have been that long after I fell asleep and I was dreaming. And the best way to describe this dream is that I was somewhere with my wife and we were talking to someone in a, a very dark wooded type of cabin type thing. And it was in the woods and there was a driveway that went out and we were leaving. Uh, we shook hands with this guy and uh, we got out in the car and we started to go down the driveway. And as you exited the woods, you came into like a residential neighborhood. And on the left was uh, a little, um, and I'm sure everybody will know what I mean when I say like the tiny pebbled driveway that's that's often not just a pebble, but it's it's like it's you could stick your hand in the pebbles. It's like that loose gravel driveway. Yeah. Um, it went behind a house that was very like a very like a double long rancher, and the back end of this place was filled with uh, um, big bay doors and stuff like that, and then a house towards the end. And I know there was just car parts everywhere. And and being the son of an auto mechanic, I'm used to seeing a lot of parts at the shop and uh, axles and you know just junk, engine heads and blocks and all this kind of stuff. And I made a wrong turn. I turned actually into this area um, where all these parts were laying, like behind this house. And I got down to the end, and I'm like, there's no way out of here. I can't make a right down beside this building and get back out to the road. So I turned around to start backing up, and I'm trying not to hit all of these parts as I'm backing out in this loose gravel, and the car's kind of having a hard time getting out. And as I get back to the edge of the gate that I had come through, there was an old man standing with a gun, and there was a larger, younger man standing with him. And right away, my thought is, oh, shit, now what, you know? And... um I got out, and he began to chastise me uh, and accusing me of breaking down back in behind his house and stealing his auto parts. <laughs> and I remember vividly him pointing to an engine block laying on the ground. He said, you took something off of this, and it was a Subaru. I said, I drive a Thunderbird, you idiot. What the hell's wrong with you? Uh, you know, I didn't steal anything. You know, Somehow or other, we end up being told to, to go into the back end of his house, which is a long hallway that leads down to what looks like a larger room with a chair that seems higher than the floor, higher than a normal chair. And he's sitting on this chair, and the, the bigger guy is behind us, and he ends up walking back into another room. I don't remember what was said. Um, all I know is that one minute my wife was beside me, and we're saying to this man, look, we wanted to buy this house. You didn't want to sell it to us because your wife died here. Now, interestingly enough, that probably relates to the house we just bought. The man that we bought the house from, his wife passed away and he wanted to sell the house and we bought it. He never, he never gave us any trouble about buying the house. That, that must have been something else. But, um, and at that point, this man... Uh, kind of began to sob a little bit um, as I'm giving him what for. And uh, I look at my wife to say, wow, we need to just leave because he's clearly upset. Uh, and this is how the whole 
you know, I don't know how this went from me being accosted by driving in his driveway to talking to him about his wife and wanting to buy this. I don't know where that all came from. But as most dreams go, they turn ass over hindquarters most of the time anyway. So I look at my wife, uh, and all of a sudden, she's not there anymore. It's a, it's a man. Uh, blonde hair, as I remember. Uh, I couldn't remember any of the features, per se. But uh, I said uh, something. I mean, it startled me because I looked over and I see this person there because literally the whole time I've been standing there, I can you can just feel my wife is beside me and then to turn and it's not her and thinking, I said, where's my wife? And this man just kind of looked at me and uh, he said, uh, just take it easy. I'm, I'm here to help. Relax. I'm here to help. I said, okay. Uh, and I think I, again, asked, where's my wife? She's fine. He walks over to the man and says something to him, and the man collapses into this guy's arms. He starts hugging him, and this man is hugging him back and patting him on the back, saying, it's going to be okay. And as this man is crying, I see his face go from crying to anger, uh, quickly and as I see that happening I get a very uneasy feeling and before I know it this man is literally strangling the younger man who was standing beside me and squeezing him so tight that it kills him the man lets loose of his grip and the man slumps down in front of him and now this man doesn't have blonde hair anymore he's got um, a smooth skin he's bald um, a slit for a mouth, um, not big almond black eyes, but he has smaller eyes, but still bigger than ours, but they're wrinkly around them, and they're gray around his eyes, very gray, and it's very obviously not human, and it's dead. So, I immediately, I turn around, I was like, he killed him, <laughs> the first thing in my mind is not, holy crap, it's an alien, the first thing out of my mind is, I've got to get the hell out of here. He just killed him. I'm next. So I turn around to start running, and I wake up screaming. And I'm in bed, and it takes me a good three or four seconds to realize it was a dream because it was so detailed um, and took such a weird turn. And as I am, am, am sitting there in the dark in my bedroom, uh, I see a pattern that is in my vision. Now, how to describe this, because this is the part Jeremy had a hard time understanding. Um, picture, um, picture clear acetate, and uh, you're going to draw on it with a pen that has just a little bit of light to it, so the ink glows just a very slight bit. And then you're going to draw on it with that glowy pen and some black. And now put that around your scope of vision. So it's kind of like this overlaid image. Uh, but this overlaid image is moving. And it is uh, a fractal, spiral-looking fractal. And it's moving. It's, it's moving in the direction that it's twisting. 
and uh, every once in a while, I would get a like a flash coming towards me from this fractal point. The weird part about it was is that if I shut my eyes, it got more intense. When I opened my eyes, it seemed to fade. Um, uh, and and or not be as prevalent. If my eyes were shut in the blackness, of course, it's going to be more prevalent. Uh, but it's moving, and there are it's it's a central fractal, and then there are several little fractals all around it. Then they're moving and morphing and changing as this is all going on. This is in split seconds after I wake up. Um, so I see this, and immediately I look over at my wife, and when I do, the fractal pattern doesn't follow me, as if it's not in my head, as if it's around me, but it's got to be in my head, <laughs> but if it's in my head, why is it not following? When I turn to look in her direction, why is it not following that, that visionary pattern? Uh, in fact, when I turned, I saw the little ones growing, like, uh, um, I thought of a really, I saw a thing on TV the other day that reminded me of it, it was like um, when they find an octopus in a hole and the octopus tentacles come out, that's kind of what it reminded me of, like this blooming uh, effect to it. Um, and as I turn back around towards the doorway, I see the main fractal, which again is, is turning and pulsing uh, every so often, uh, not in a, any sort of regular way. So you've got that visual. You've got looking into the hallway, sort of some light coming up from the stairwell. And you can see a portion of the wall of the stairwell through my doorway. Now here's where it's weird, is that as I'm sitting there watching this fractal pattern move and wondering when it's going to go away, uh something starts to emerge not from the center of it, but just off-center to its right. I see this mass kind of moving, not in the way that the fractal's moving, not this slow churning movement, but rather this jerky, unfluid-like movement. And I'm not moving my eyes from where I'm looking because I start to see that there is a bulbous blob emerging out of uh, one of the tendrils of this fractal and I see what is very clearly eyes uh, close together but they're not uh, again go back to your visual of Whitley Strieber's communion book with the pointy edged eyes pointy at the ends this was like goggles this was rounded where it should be pointed so more or less ovals, slanted ovals, but not quite even as slanted as, as it appears on that book. I could see this. It's in the fractal. And I'm like, well, immediately my head is going, just shut up and watch. And I watched, and as I watched, this thing got, I would say, as far out as a neck, a head, and maybe part of a shoulder and then it would zip back into the fractal pattern. And then you would see it emerge again and zip back. So it was kind of like a re it was like replaying, like a stuck videotape. And uh, the more times that it happened, the more solid it seemed to become. Until such a point 
that it began making a shadow on the wall. And then I realized that this thing, while it may be in my vision and in my brain that's making this pattern, there is something forming exactly under it on the wall across the room that is meshing perfectly with it. It's like an overlay that beyond it is a solid object that is following it to the letter. So, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I, I don't know how much clearer I can describe that other than an overlay in vision, like, a, like picture a cartoon in your vision. Now picture that cartoon, whatever wall you're looking at, now that cartoon is actually coming three-dimensionally out of the wall. I mean, that's the only way to, to accurately describe it. And, and at a certain point, uh, a hand hit the wall. I heard it. <laughs> I heard it hit the wall. And then it went back in again. I mean, keep in mind, I've got an overlay of this fractal pattern with this thing coming out of it, and it's actually coming up on the wall beyond it. Uh, and it's, it's real. It's there. It's causing a freaking shadow on the wall. But it's not all there. It, I had thought, is this coming out of the wall? You know, that kind of thing. But I don't think it was. I think it was in the air. It was half there and half not. Um, so, uh, at one point, it, it went back in and, and the whole thing just began to fade. But the fractal pattern, the overlay in my vision, faded first. And then the object making a shadow on the wall faded. So they were like two different uh, rates of, of dissolution uh, of those images that I saw. Um, so that's why I made the comment, starts in your mind, ends up on the floor. Um, the, the thought in my head is that, was I dreaming? And somehow this thing manifested beside me on the floor and interacted in my dream and then when it was trying to leave it got caught or I'm it's I had told Jeremy it had the appearance of I wasn't I wasn't particularly I was a little bit afraid when it made the noise on the wall I kind of backed up in bed a little bit and put my other hand down but it didn't I didn't feel like there was anything in that form. Like that form was just uh, like a uh, like a shell that was left over. Like it was already gone. Whatever was in there was already gone. This was just some uh, residue or piece of something that had been, but now isn't anymore. I don't know how much sense that makes. Um, but that's yeah, well, it makes sense. I, Wife, dog, son, nobody woke up when you screamed? No. Um, Lisa didn't wake up until the whole thing had dissipated, and I was reaching down into my pants pocket, which were on the floor, to try and grab something to write on. Because I said, if I don't write this down, there are going to be nuances I'm going to forget. And I didn't forget them because I, I wouldn't forget that. <laughs> But well, I wanted, yeah, to, I wanted I, to write the dream down more than anything because that's... I think you read to me what you wrote. Uh, I believe it was this, right? That you read to me what you wrote? Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, let me tell you, it wasn't it wasn't very nuanced. No, so I, I don't know what I don't know what you think you were writing at like four in the morning, but I mean, it came out. I mean, thing wall. Yeah, yeah. Sa. Well, it was it was you know uh, it was more or less trying to to nail down what I what I was dreaming about because you always forget your dreams. You never remember them so clearly. Right. And those keywords kind of helped me remember that dream as vividly as I do. And it was pretty vivid. Um, but it didn't start out the way it ended. It it just took this incredibly unpredictable, bizarre bend to it. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know the fractal thing. I, lo- I tried to look up online, like, waking from a dream and seeing a fractal or something like that. Like, does that is that something that people have seen before? And, and I think what I found, a couple of people have... Um, I, I don't I don't know what the significance of that is. I don't know. Um, I've never seen such a thing as well. Half our audience just shit their pants, so there's that significance. Well, I, um, I don't know. It it just it I just got this overwhelming feeling like yeah, it starts in your mind, but it ends up real, um, which just that throws a monkey wrench into everything that I've been thinking to a point, but in another way, I, um, I, I kind of almost feel like it's a, it, there again, say it, you can take a drink. It's another clue of some sort that, <laughs> that, that, um, you know, that clearly what we're not dealing with is, you know, little green men, which I think we've left a long time ago, but is still the overbearing popular view. Um, well, here's the question that, that, that I'm left with. Um, you know, the more you think about these things in terms of anything, the more it gives you what it is you think you're seeing. So when you used to think it was demonic, it looked demonic. Mm-hmm. And now that, you know, you've been toying with the idea of of this, um, you know, interweaving of us and them, and, you know, you give as much as you get, well, now you're seeing that in action. And I wonder if... If you're actually seeing more of what is true about the nature of this phenomenon, or if they're just giving you more of what you're expecting to see, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And um, uh, and yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. Um, Although, how elaborate would that be? <laughs> Jesus Christ! For I mean, theater, you know. <laughs> uh, I, you know, and I I don't. You know, I mean, normally any other time in my life, I mean, I most people know by now that I'm absolutely petrified by the thought of, you know, something that looks like that walking around in my house or, you know, uh, getting near me. And I was, I was reasonably scared when I heard the noise because that, I mean, the shadow, okay, I see the shadow. Wait a minute, there's something behind well, what's making that shadow? What's making that shadow? And then, you know, <laughs> you hear that on the wall, and I'm like, yo, there's something there, <laughs> you know? And that's when I started backing up in the bed a little bit. Um, and I think I mentioned to you at the time, I, I I thought about waking Lisa up, but I thought to myself, again, if she won't wake up, then I'm going to be even more scared if she won't right. wake up, because I haven't encountered that a couple of times, and that does make me freak even worse. So, uh, so I don't know. I mean, it, 
it was definitely a bizarre visual. Um, uh, but the fractal thing, I mean, again, um, the the I, I can't. It, it's it's not going to be possible to really. I'm going to try to do something in Photoshop with it, like you suggested, because I I think I could do that. Uh, the, 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 I can't describe accurately how the overlay worked with what was actually there. Well, it's the word fractal that gets me. I can't picture what you mean by fractal. I, just that the image was in fractions, that it was sectioned off somehow. Now, um, picture a spiral, like a black and white spiral. Right. Now, on the black, uh, starting all the way down in the, in the center, make a, a thing that looks like a tree. And then continue repeating that all the way up the each side of that black section of the of the spiral. It looked like that. It looked like trees, it, it, huh. like uh, like this. I, I mean, I've got um, somewhere around here. I used to have a program that made fractals that you could explore a fractal with. This so was like in shards, kind of thing. Uh, more like um, more like. Um, Trees, like, like you yeah, said. Yeah, like like well like octopus like um tentacle but with Okay, just, so just, I'm thinking just, of the entire vision being in shards and you're actually talking when you say fractal, you're actually talking about the the lines themselves or the the, the cracks themselves the, or whatever. Yeah, the shape of the thing was a spiral that was turning uh, and growing, it was it was growing. Right. I mean, each each tree spawned a new little tree and a new little tree off of that. It just it was so freaking complex that to try to do it in Photoshop would be the the computer would explode. the 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 level of complexity of this of this site was ridiculous. But it was all there was no color. It was all. Lighter patches and dark lines, darker than the dark in the room. If that makes any freaking sense at all. But what do you attribute your feelings about the being? You said the being. It looked like it was in fast forward and reverse, uh, yeah. and that it wasn't really there. It was the remnants of something that that maybe had been there. When you think about stuff like that, where do your feelings about it come from? Do you know? Uh, no, I just. Uh, it's just like a, an association that you make on the fly, or do you think that you are informed in some way of what you're seeing? I don't. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, that was almost one of the first things that came to mind when I saw how it was moving. Is like it's not really there. Uh, there's something there. There's something there that's material. Is that someone there? But it, is that someone there? You know, I don't think I like this. Uh, <laughs> uh, are we the only ones who get those jokes? Uh, <laughs> Those references. Send your emails to paratopiapodcast at gmail.com. I just, I mean, you could tell. I don't know how you could, it's it's hard to explain. To to look at it, you say, well, that's just something playing. But the more that it played, the more solid it became beyond this fractal pattern vision. Um, It became solid behind it but at the same time I'm thinking that's not really that's nothing there's nothing in that it's it, this is this is over this is leaving um, that's just the thought that I had and I don't 
I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but I knew that that made me significantly less freaked out by it. Mm-hmm. To the point where I could just watch. Um, and I and I I literally I really 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 watched and I really paid attention to what I was seeing. Um, and and that's what it was. I mean, like I said, it, there was no mark on the wall. Um, I didn't see any footprints in the in the carpet. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, um, that's what happened. And uh, um, and and you could be right. Maybe it's showing me what I think I uh, what my current line of thinking is. Maybe it's feeding into that. But um, you know, my other thought is that I have also said, you know, if I could. If I could observe this thing from a comfortable distance in every sense of that word, then I might be a little bit better with it. And the past two times, I've been better with it. Um, I mean, if I'd have seen that ten years ago, I'd have been out the freaking window. But I just sat there. I said, it's leaving. It's not It's not coming at me. It's going into it. Um, so, you know... That's probably why it didn't bother me as much, and and plus there was that internal component that I, I had the distinct feeling that there was something that was in my vision that was, that was something in my mind making that making me see that. Did you have any feelings about the being, whether it was alive, whether what its intentions were, you know, hostile, not hostile? I, I don't know. Um. See, that's the part that really bugs me about the whole damn thing is 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 the the dream that I was having. I was kind of in a pickle. And if that being was interjecting its thoughts into my dream and that was really happening, then when he said, relax, I'm here to help, he was trying to get me out of the dream, get me out of that situation and and all that. But why? What? It's just a freaking dream. Well... Why? I mean, what what was the point of the interjection in that? Um, unless, um, unless you talk about again what comes up in uh, Strassman's book, where he talks about that these entities people see in a psychedelic experience feed on or seem to feed on emotion and feed on fear and. So was it trying desperately in my dream to make the situation worse to scare me to such a point that I would wake up? Well, or if there was something that was in your room, um, you could have just been dreaming and unconsciously um, been perceiving it, and these things are, for lack of a better word, telepathic. It could have been doing its usual routine of saying, it's okay, calm down, calm down, preemptively, (laughs) expecting you to wake up and find it. And you just heard it in your dream and interpreted it into your dream, you know? Well, that's possible, too, yeah. Um, but it was weird, man. I mean, that... Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the, and here's the thing that, that really kind of... Initially, when I woke up and I saw this fractal pattern everywhere, um, it held the same quality and the same feeling as the white square did. It held that same seeing but blind feeling about it. it. It's a hard feeling to describe, but, you know, I mean, again, just, you know, uh, 
picture any picture you want being right in the middle of your vision, but it's so crystal clear and it's getting in the way. That kind yeah. of feeling. No, I know what you mean. And you know, maybe the analogy is if you um, if you've ever looked at a bright light and you look away, or you've been in the sun, and you get that sort of head rush, and uh, you know your your vision goes muddy red or something for a few seconds. Yeah. Or you rub um, your eyes and you have that cloudiness when your eyes are tired. Yeah. It it it, it but it's a different quality than but that's the same kind of effect. It's it's that in your vision thing that you can't escape no matter. And I remember saying, don't shut your eyes, because when you shut your eyes, it gets even more prevalent. <laughs> um, so I was trying to keep my eyes open, and that's when all the other stuff started to begin. So now that's all interesting to me, because that, I mean, that smacks of stuff that happens when I let this meditation thing out um, for any extended period of time, is that I do see things like that. You know, I do see uh, reality overlaid over reality, and it's uh, more prevalent when you shut your eyes, but it's still there when you open them. Mm. Um, but I don't, I haven't seen beings or anything like that. Um, but I, I almost wonder if it's not tapping into the same sort of thing. You know? uh, this was like, unlike any being, quote unquote, that I've ever seen. I mean, it had a decidedly different look about it. Um, the only thing I ever thought I saw when I was uh, doing that meditation stuff was back in the other, the other apartment. And I could have sworn, I mean, it scared me enough to, like, take myself out of that state and turn on all the lights and turn on music and, like, just, you know, <laughs> pray. <laughs> was uh, seeing a shadow of a person peel itself off the bathroom door and, like, peer around the door. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it was an open door, and, and that's what it looked like. It looked like it was stepping off of the door and looking around the door and, you know, preparing to come at me or preparing to... <laughs> come out, you know, into reality, and I, I that was just way too much. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't even know um, how much of that is a some sort of hallucination. What do we mean uh, when we say hallucination? Yeah, I mean, what does that you, mean? Well, right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, if, I mean, if I had not gotten scared and let it play out, would this what thing would really happen? have yeah. come up to me, or would it have just gone away? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the thing. I, I don't it's uh, this is a weird fucking world, man. It's it just weird. Well, it doesn't help that we don't know what the hell we are and what the hell the boundaries of this world are. You know? Yeah. It's like we've got all of these dilemmas, and the world's weird. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and you know, I had I had serious thoughts about even talking about that that experience because it is just beyond even weird for me. Well, I'm glad you did because I feel like it's it because it's beyond weird for you. It's important. It's it's a new thing. It's a new you know? thing. It's a new thing. I, I what I uh, the other thing that bothers me about it is that the being it just it looked like nothing that it looked like nothing that I had personally ever seen before. Uh, mm -hmm. It just didn't hold this. It looked different. It looked like I said, goggle-eyed looking thing. I mean, very round elongated, but, you know, you're talking about that level of angle to the eyes was just not even, it was just very slight bend in that, and the and the, the edges, the ends of it was not pointed like an almond, they were ovaled out, it was smoothed around, and that just kind of, I was like, huh, I mean, immediately in my head, I'm, I'm like, that's different. Um, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't even want to sound dramatic about this, but I feel like it's 
it's odd how far I feel we've gotten, and I don't even know what that means. I just feel like it's odd how far we've gotten in under ten episodes of this show, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's I mean, it's a different direction, right? I mean, definitely feels like we're we're fleshing something out here, you know? Yeah, but what the hell is it? <laughs> well, I don't know, you know. I don't, I don't really know either. Flesh it out. I mean, <laughs> and that may be the end game right there. Is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, just like George said. How about no them ETs? You know, <laughs> there is no why. Right, right. Um, well, there's no why that we can know about, maybe, but. Although, if they, in the end, I don't understand. I mean, if he agrees that it's a, if he thinks it is a spiritual thing, you know, that keeping in the state of question so that, you know, you have the big breakthrough, uh, the psychotic break of enlightenment, um, <laughs> then isn't that a why? Isn't that the ultimate why? Um, I guess it would be. Um, I don't, the thought keeps coming to mind that that um, you know, like for instance, the near death experience. You know, somebody dies on an operating table and they go to this place where all the plants look like they've got their own glow and it's beautiful and they feel so great and they see people who have gone before them and they say, "You can't stay." You know, that person comes back dramatically changed from that. In that, they don't. They no longer fear dying. In fact, they almost, in a, in a strange kind of way, and it sounds weird to even hear them say it, is that they almost look forward to when that happens. They don't encourage it, but they, they're unafraid, and they, almost, they, they know that they're going to that place. That relates also to the Hopkins experiment with DMT with terminally ill cancer patients who were very afraid of dying in the dying process, and they come back from that experience saying, I am no longer afraid because uh, I've, I've seen a peak at what's to come and I'm not afraid anymore. So uh, as, as weird as it sounds, what if the why is, you know, holding that secret of what's after this uh, back and, uh, and psychedelics and near-death experiences are like, some kind of unsanctioned preview of that, and what if that's the key, or if, uh, what if that's the door that the, the trickster, quote unquote, is holding the keys to? We can't know at all. We can't know what this is all about because if it does, it spoils the whole plan. The question is, what's the plan? You know, I mean, I, you know, I've been thinking that for a while. That uh, uh, especially when you hear Whitley talk about, you know, people and experiences seeing. Dead, their dead relatives in the presence of these beings, and what the hell is that all about? Uh, I mean, I've tossed around before that 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 is some effort by these beings to make you more comfortable. But why are they always dead people? <laughs> you know, that's not an adequate enough answer for me. For me, that it's just a comfort. It's something to make you more comfortable. It seems like it's something more than that, and. You know, it's at that point where I say, is this something that's holding the keys to a greater reality that we aren't supposed to know about until a certain time? Um, and everybody in due time is going to find out. I mean, uh, uh, so I don't know. I, I mean, it, it comes to that deeper meaning of existence is, you know, what is this all about? And why are we seeing these things? And 
Uh, and if we're seeing these things now, while we're young bucks, you know, um, you know, what 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 is it going to be when we're seventy, eighty? You know, I told you before, I'm shooting for 115, but um, <laughs> you know, but what? Good luck. Yeah, I mean, what is uh? You know what's sad? I have uh, my friend Umber. We were having a deep chat the other night, and she was asking me, "So, what do you, what are your goals in life? What do you want now in life?" You know that sort of question. By the way, folks, Umber's cute. That's right. And you know what? My, uh, my the very first answer that came to mind is um, nothing. I'm just waiting to die. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was like that lame answer of like, I feel like um, I've seen too much. <laughs> like, there's no point in me being here like this anymore. Mm. Having had that giant experience, um, so I don't know. Ultimately, you know, so so like when you talk about wanting to be 115, or you know, what is it going to be like when we're 70 or whatever? I don't know. I think maybe I peaked. Um, maybe you'll get to see some cool stuff, and and I got shit because I peaked. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, I, and you know what? Here's what you got to think about. Most people. If this happened to them, do you think they'd go on the internet and talk about it? Hi, Australia. Hi, Spain. <laughs> Hi, New Zealand and Russia. Um, you know, the world is listening. Japan. Hi, Japan. Um, I mean, there are people listening to us everywhere, and that, to me, is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, <laughs> To a lot of people, that's ridiculous. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that, to me, is just... Uh, I think we're doing something. I mean, I because I feel completely comfortable saying this to anybody who would ask me. Uh, and I don't mind broadcasting this across the net. If it tweaks with somebody and somebody gets something out of it, maybe you could help me out and, you know, return the favor. Um, I think that we are looking at a greater nature of reality that maybe a lot of people are uncomfortable about, but maybe this is the way everything is supposed to go. And I mean, we're not the only ones on this scene by a long shot, but we're one little spring in that wheel. that's doing something. I don't know what, but that's, could that be the reason for, you know, us meeting? I mean, uh, well, that seems to go well with, you know, what Nancy Burns has been saying lately, which is that she thinks uh, guys like you and me are here to articulate this because we can, and that that's why it's happening to you us. You can. <laughs> no, I think you, you just, for a half hour, just quite clearly described the most indescribable experience well, <laughs> anyone could have. Whether or not so. I mean shit to anyone is another matter. Well, no, well, I think I think it was quite eloquent. I think uh, you <laughs> don't give yourself enough credit. Well... I mean, maybe... You sound like a surfer. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, fuck you. It comes out uh, like an idiot, but, <laughs> but we all know what you're saying. Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> Thanks. Don't make me edit that, by the way. <laughs> you fuck. <laughs> um, it's jokes. Um, but that's, that's you know, I think that you have a lot more coming. I think you've got a lot... I think you're going to stumble onto something more in all this. And uh, um, and you've already said before that you're like at this plateau 
and are trying to verbalize the plateau. And once you get done verbalizing that, then you're, you say, you know, you're ready for what's next. Well, what's next, I don't think is death. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've got other things to do. I mean, this is all getting, this is getting way too deep for me. Well, Uh, no, I didn't mean for anyone to call a freaking suicide hotline for me. I was just (laughs) saying, I, I, you know, fear I'm going to be bored for the next 70 years. Well, uh, you know, you're making all your discoveries and stuff. So 115 to me doesn't sound too appetizing. Well, I think you've got more to make. Uh, I think there's a lot more to see. And I think there's a lot more to, um, I think there's a lot more experience for you to to to, to come with uh, all of that. Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, probably a sign of immaturity that I'm even having this discussion because, you know, every f- idiot who thinks that they're you know old, feel old, or whatever, you know, is always uh, somebody who has not lived. Well, uh, so I, I guess the the argument argument can be made that that's me. And I think I I think anybody 35 years old, which you are, right? Yeah. Uh, I had the same thought, you know, I'll be dead by by the time I'm 40. And, of course, when I was 16, I said, I'll never get as old as my mom and dad, and here I am. So, I didn't think I would make it past 25, I don't think, when I was in high school. What? I thought, for sure. Something happened, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that's, I've always had that thought that, you know, uh, getting old is, is just kind of a archaic concept to me. I just, I can't picture it. And, and I still don't feel old. I still feel like I'm 18. That's the problem. Well, you pretty much are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, know, you don't look in your 40s. I don't look 35, I don't think. No, uh-uh. Um, You're doing okay. We're yeah. Vampires. I, I, We're like vampires, <laughs> you and I. Vampires. You hear that, ladies? We're vampires. <laughs> and that's where we, Jeff, what term did you just learn today? That's where we... Oh, jump the jump shark. The shark. <laughs> there you go. In my cackly old man laugh, I've learned a new term from the Gen Xers. Jump the shark. That's right. <laughs> well, fire up my motorcycle. <laughs> I, got more sh- I got plenty more sharks to jump. So, Man alive. Well, If only he had jumped it on a motorcycle, that would have been awesome. <laughs> well... Nonetheless, I think this show is over. Yeah. So arguably, it was over uh, an hour ago, but uh, but well, we keep on keeping on. Well, before we go, I want to say one thing. Go on. Uh, since we have moved our our um, website and our podcast is now on iTunes and all of that kind of stuff. Um. I think that we both should be saying thank you to people for listening because we got people, like I said, Australia, Japan, Germany, Sweden, uh, Mexico, uh, Peru, um, just all over the place really subscribing to us to listen to. And I hope that those people know how much we appreciate that they, they listen because we're, we're, what are we, six episodes old now or something like that? Uh, I think this will be eight. Yeah, this will be eight. So I mean, so thank you to those people out there listening because I, I mean, I really appreciate it because we, we truly didn't know what the hell we were doing. (laughs) (laughs) 
or what response we were going to get out of all this, but you know, it is it is great that we're getting some very nice feedback from people and and uh, and go visit the message board uh, for God's sakes, paratopia.net, and on the right hand side is the message board where you can chime in and uh, and add to all this discussion as we're going along. So, um, so yeah, thanks to all you people. Um, Thank you, people, all of you. Yes. We love you, each and every one. We do, really. You're like snowflakes. Right. You're completely different and individual, and yet I want you all in my tongue. Ugh. No? Nothing. Okay. Guess I'll edit that part out. That's where we end it. 